Hi, everyone. It's Dr. Denise. This is the Embrace Your Neurostyle and Beyond series. And I am smiling. I am excited and I am honored to have Dr. Jess Shatkin back. Dr. Jess, how are you? I'm doing great, Denise. Thanks for having me on. Good to be with you again. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so I am smiling. We will have Dr. Shatkin's bio. He, I'll just give you, Jess, do you want to tell a little bit about the different hats you're wearing right now? Jess is across the United States. I'm in Manhattan Beach. Jess, tell us a little bit about all the different hats you're wearing these days. Sure. You're in Manhattan Beach and I'm in Manhattan, just plain Manhattan. Uh, And I am what they call the vice chair for education in the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. And I'm also in pediatrics here at NYU. And I'm a professor in the School of Medicine. So those are my titles. And my job is to develop and run educational and clinical education programs in child, adolescent, and young adult mental health. So I see patients most days uh, for a few hours. I teach and organize curricula for training both psychologists and psychiatrists in child and adolescent mental health. I run an undergraduate department at the NYU College downtown for undergraduates called Child and Adolescent Mental Health Studies. And we operate, we teach 54 unique college courses. Many of them are taught more than uh, once in the year and many are taught in multiple sections. So we're offering close to 200 offerings of our courses, full college courses, we're a department at the college and we're one of the biggest departments at NYU. We're the largest college minor at NYU. Teach about 7,000 students this year. And uh, I work with the residents and the fellows, and I write some some things. I've written some books, one about risk and one about just a textbook uh, in child and adolescent mental health. The third edition comes out in January. So I'm very active and I love it. And it's been a great field. And I was, uh, I was really blessed and fortunate to train with you at UCLA many years ago. Yes, many years ago. And I was getting my coffee ready, lighting my candle, thinking, oh my goodness, it's Mental Health Awareness Month. And Dr. Jess Shackin and I have had many, like tens of thousands of clinical hours. And I was thinking, Jess, what if you and I were on a spaceship and now we're here having this show and this show's called Embrace Your Neurostyle and Beyond. And that's defined as we all process and perceive information in our own unique way. Fabulous five, biological, psychological, social, cultural, spiritual, and sixth sense intuition And with your body of knowledge and mine, and we're talking prevention, mental wellness this month, I was thinking if you and I just got shipped on a ship, I just just came to me just like 30 minutes ago. And then we were told to say, what is going on earth right now with (laughs) mental health? And what can we tell the humans about prevention, risk? What would we want to do if we just sat down and we just had like 30 to 40 minutes like we do today. And I thought maybe we could start there because it's it, there's so many levels of your expertise in mind, but I think we could do some broad strokes and then deep dive back into your one of your books. Well, you've got your textbook, but I'd like to go into the teen risk book. But what, what are your thoughts? Do you want to just go there and like travel with like prevention and different things that we think sure. the world should know? Yeah, so I think there's a few things that that jump out at me. First, you hear a lot about child mental health, uh, epidemic of adolescent mental illness, suicidality, things of these nature. 
And I want to be clear that none of that is epidemic and all of this was expected and anticipated. We have been seeing increased rates of mental illness amongst children, adolescents, and adults in every generation that we've studied it, and we've been studying it since World War II. So we continue to see increase in rates, and none of that is surprising. And an epidemic is something you don't expect. COVID's an epidemic. Where did this come from? How did this happen? Nobody saw that coming. This we have seen coming. So it's not really an epidemic. It's an expected trend. The COVID pandemic certainly uh, made many things worse for people socially, emotionally, behaviorally. And so that uh, did increase rates higher than we might anticipate. But still, we have seen this coming for a long time. The good news is, and the thing to really focus on, I think, is that we've known for a long time that there are things that we can do that prevent the great severity of mental illness that we're seeing. Some things will prevent mental illness from happening in the first place, some of our tools, and some of our tools can be employed in early identification and treatment, and we can make a huge difference. There's lots of things we can do. We can break it down and get into it if you like, but but there's no doubt that we know now enough to be doing a lot more than what we're doing. Well, I actually agree, and I was actually thinking this, and I asked, my, my son's been on my show last year. He's now 14. And I think, you know, the, the most humbling thing I think we can all do besides our work as doctors is being parents and what it's like just to relate about prevention. And so I like that. Let's go down the hope and the wellness path. And I know that you and I've spoken and I will put the link to the show we did in 2017 about 50% of life, all lifelong mental health challenges happen before age 14 and 75% before age 24. So maybe we can talk about genetics plus environment, also authoritative versus authoritarian, also school programs that can work holistic health with sleep, nutrition, fitness, and all the things to gear people up. So even if they have a genetic predisposition to depression, ADHD, generalized anxiety, bipolar, or or predisposed to risk take of substance use, why don't we start there. Does that sound like a good place with with your body of knowledge and interest? Sounds great. Sounds great. So you've listed a lot of things that we know about, and I'll just get into a few of them. Some of the easiest to uh, explore the healthy habits. And you mentioned a, a bunch of them, sleep, nutrition, exercise, goal setting, organizational skills, all of these things in various ways have been shown to reduce the severity of mental illness, to treat mild and moderate degrees of mental illness, and to uh, be, be generally health promoting in, in terms of both physical health and emotional health. So, you know, we, we know, I think increasingly people are aware, you're out in California, of uh, school start times. And we know that, uh, that when we start school in line with a young person's schedule, with their, their natural circadian rhythm, which is genetically determined by age as opposed to environmentally determined, it's environmentally influenced, but it's largely genetically determined, that people function better. And another study just came out last week looking at students, a uh, very, very large database of students in Asia, and just showing that when they start school on their circadian rhythm, so for teenagers, this would be later that in the day, so maybe starting at 9 or 10 in the morning, when they start later as opposed to 6.30, 7, 7.30, they do better academically, they score higher on tests, 
they uh, have take fewer risks. They get into fewer automobile accidents. They take fewer foolish risks around drugs and sex and criminal behavior. They have better moods. They have less anxiety. And in California, the reason I punctuated that is because California passed a law a few years ago saying that uh, high schools, public schools can't start before 8.30 and, uh, unless they're in very rural areas and they must. And there's a lot of social reasons why we tend to start school later, but the take-home point is that when we start school later, kids get more sleep and they function much better, both socially, academically, and emotionally. And sleep has been something you, as a doctor and clinician and academics, that's a big part of your body of work. Yeah, I started thinking about sleep actually when when we were fellows in our first year of our fellowship at UCLA. This would have been uh, ninety nine two thousand. I had a case of a kid who had a what's called a parasomnia. She she essentially woke up and or part of her mind woke up in the middle of the night and she had a sleepwalking episode and she injured herself. It's quite severe. We we hadn't seen a report of something like that in a in an adolescent uh, sort of pre adolescent. She was like twelve at the time, and so we wrote something about that. And then I got deeper into that. And over the years, I just realized how integral sleep is to our mental health. And I also use that as a portal to understand neuroscience better, because I think that as as much as we focus as psychiatrists on behavior and emotions, there's a lot of neuroscience that we don't get taught. And so I use that as a window to learn more about the brain. And it's been a very uh, good pathway for me. And then I've been able to share that with people. So we have lots of great tools that employ knowledge and and behavior changes we can make with sleep that make an improvement in people's mental health. You know? And 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 it, that just started sort of my entry into that. I, I was always interested in prevention. I worked as a health educator for about a decade before I went to medical school. So for me, prevention was always what excited me. I didn't know how I was going to use it in mental health, but sleep became one of those windows for me. And so I do a lot of work around sleep advocacy and changes in school start times and things. But that led to another area that I've always been interested in, and, and that was exercise. And we're, we're now showing increased studies that demonstrate that exercise is aerobic exercise, 45 minutes a day, five days a week, is as helpful for treating mild and moderate levels of depression. Not severe, but mild and moderate, as is medication or psychotherapy. And in my own life, that's just been key. I've, I've always been an avid exerciser and, and really because my parents did it. And so we can talk about parenting and what you learn from your parents. But my parents well, were a little bit overweight at 50 and they decided to get back into exercise. And, and so I grew up with parents who exercised every day and that had a, a foundational effect on me. So I love that we're talking about wellness, not illness, healthy habits, sleep as mind medicine, exercise as mind medicine, nutrition as mind medicine. So the day-to-day habits and how it influenced you and then what you've taken and integrated in your body of work, I just re-listened uh, to the show that we did when your book came out in six years ago now, I believe, Born to be yeah. Wild, Why Teens Take Risks and How We Can Help Keep Them Safe. And one of the things that was most profound in when I was re-listening to us is the power of how do we engage with our words, thoughts, and actions in our homes, in our schools, and in our universities to, to communicate in a way that empowers change. So neurostyle, that word, when everyone, my son, by the way, loves neurostyle, Jack, he did take, ah, oh my God, <laughs> Jess, um, he loves it. He loves it. He's like, mom. We don't say ADHD. We don't say discrap. We say neurostyle. And so I think one of the things you talked about in your book that was incredible with how do you talk to teens? How do we parent our teens? 
How do we empower them to use these healthy habits? You, we talked about authoritative versus authoritarian parenting style in that show. We talked about hot cognition versus cold cognition. And then you had an incredible study, the Iceland study. So I'm wondering if we could, if you could swim in those universes now to back up all the healthy habits and how we actually engage in the conversation so our children will want to have the healthy habits. Mm -hmm. So, <coughs> pardon me, a lot, a lot there to talk about. Uh, let's start so, with... Do you want yeah, to talk about the parenting style, authoritative yeah, versus sure, authoritarian? I think that's a good place to start. Okay. So uh, we've known for probably 60 years, since the 1960s, that certain types of parenting are more effective than others. And it's this, this, the original studies came out of the UC Berkeley Child Care Center for graduate students and young faculty who had children and a developmental psychologist by the name of Diana Baumrind. But what she looked at was the kids who seemed to function more easily and had better behavior in school, at the preschool, and who tend to pay more attention when the teachers are talking to them and who got into less, fewer scuffles with other kids, and the kids who didn't have those skills. And she started to look at the parents. And what she found was that the parents who were what she termed authoritative, which is a style she took to indicate a loving, supportive, engaged parent who's paying attention, who also is willing to set limits and to provide rewards and consequences when things go as they should and shouldn't go, that those kids function better in preschool. And she contrasted that with three other styles I'll talk about in a moment. But the most important thing from this to learn is that as she followed these kids then for decades beyond into teenagehood and into young adulthood, she found that these kids not only maintained their ability to pay attention better in school and focus better and have more solid friendships and, and, and the like, but they also had lower rates of depression lower rates of anxiety, lower rates of obesity. They slept better. They did better in school. They had fewer risk behaviors, the early pregnancy or sexually transmitted infections or automobile accidents. They just functioned better in just about every way that matters to parents and society. So in general, you know, she contrasted that authoritative style, which has a lot of gains now. We know a lot about that with what she called authoritarian, which is more directive, more you know, best expressed by why, because I said so. Oh, yeah. Wait, um, I just have to pause. I'll never forget my dad going, because I said so when I wanted to go to the carnival. I remember wanting to wear this cute outfit when I was 13 or 14. He's like, it's dark, it's too late. And he just couldn't give me a reason. So yeah. I love it. I just don't, did your parents ever do it because I said so? Uh, maybe sometimes. I don't, I don't have a good example like you do. Okay. I can remember it. Okay. But so my, my parents were... My, my mom was very warm, uh, is very warm. My dad was uh, warm, but firm. And I think they were authoritative uh, in that way. Uh, occasionally, I think every parent slips into authoritarian agitation yes. because we're people too. And we're going to yell sometimes and we're going to not do our best. Even you and I who know what good parenting looks like because we've studied it and observed it and treated it. Still, we, we end up sometimes uh, being exhausted and underfed and underrested and overstressed and we can't help but share our bad sides now and again that happens but someone who's reliably authoritarian agitated angry frustrated directive uh this is how it is uh does does their, their kids do suffer now there's a caveat to that and that is in a very disruptive environment 
Uh, so, for example, in an area where there's a lot of neighborhood disruption and violence or gang activity, an authoritarian uh, authoritarian parent can be a very effective parent. They can really help keep their kids in line. And that sort of style has shown some benefit in those kind of environments and in certain cultures where authoritarian parenting uh, is expected. So it's not that it's all terrible. There are times when you really need to be that directive with your kids and it can be life-saving for them. But generally speaking, authoritative, which again is that structured and uh, rewards and consequences and a lot of love and a lot of attention is the one that we've seen have the greatest yield. And then there's a couple of other styles which she calls permissive, which is sort of like, yeah, whatever, I'm not paying too close attention. And then negligent, where I'm not really watching the store at all as a parent and the kids sort of do what they want to do. And this might be a parent who's suffering from mental illness themselves. It's quite severe or has been incarcerated in and out of the house or a parent who has uh, substance use problems. There could be lots of reasons for this uh, disruptive home, but essentially we're striving for that authoritative parenting. And Diana Baumann's work doesn't focus on this so much, but others work focuses on this and, and Alan Kasdan and others. And this is the, the way we teach it. And you and I had an instructor, a guy named Fred Frankel, who, who taught us about parent management training. And that is a, a, the tools by which we can teach authoritative parenting. And so if we're back to prevention, one of the things we're not doing, and one of the things I'd love to see us do in schools all over the country, all over the world, is to teach neuroscience, essentially, or behavioral neuroscience. And, and one of the things to teach in that, in that curriculum would be parenting, because it's basic behavior modification. And we know that we can teach it. And we know that people do much better when they have those tools and their kids do better. No, I agree. Absolutely. And then how to then, <clears throat> I think the next deep dive, like, so that that's fantastic. And then the specific thing that we talked about that was in your book was an examples. This is now for preteens and teens with Dr. Shatkin's book, he talked about hot cognition versus cold cognition and described qualitatively rich ways to actually interact with children and teens to get them to see while their brain's still developing how to make good choices. Can you, can you comment on that, Jess? Sure. So there's many things that contribute to kids taking risks. I think a lot of what we were taught uh, everybody, uh, even today, people are taught that adolescents think they're invincible and that's why they take risks. But we know now that it's not uh, the thought of invincibility that, that promotes risk-taking. We know it's a whole series of, of evolutionary devices that are put in place to make teenagers the absolute best at taking risks. And really it's designed to help them thrive and to help them go out and become successful in building their own families. If they don't take some risks, if they're not willing to try a new food or, or go into a new territory or find a, a new mate, then they're not likely to survive and build their own family and pass on their genes. And we are genetically, evolutionarily programmed to do that. And there's lots of data and people can look at the book or, or read all sorts of things to learn that. But one of the many things that drives us towards this kind of risk-taking behavior is uh, what scientists sometimes call, in abbreviation, hot and cold cognition. And that is that when we're at a moment when we're particularly hungry or angry or horny or excited about something, we act more impulsively. And that's when our brain is, is a little more likely to follow that old evolutionary pathway of do what's fast, expedient, and get us to the goal line quickly. 
And again, for evolutionary reasons, look, Mother Nature is is not terribly empathetic, so she's happy to sacrifice thousands to save millions. You're going to lose some people because they eat that mushroom they, they better not have eaten, but they didn't know better and they were hungry, so they ate it. And the rest of the clan learns don't eat that mushroom because John died. You know, th that's the risk-taking behavior that we rely upon adolescents for, essentially. Try that water source, you know, go out into that new area. And adolescents do that more, and they do it more because they're more triggered into that hot cognition by evolution. They're geared for that. Cold cognition, which is like, let me think about this. Let me analyze this, is something that you learn more with time that even teenagers can do, but they can't do it when they're around peers who are all jumping off the bridge into the river below and they're feeling dared and they're feeling like they have to be a part of that or they're being asked to race or try a new drug or stay out all night. Because when your peers are doing it, there's so much, again, evolutionary pressure. You have all these, these hormones and neural circuitry designed to get you to respond to that and to engage in that behavior right now because your survival is on the line. I mean, remember that teenagers are, evolutionarily speaking, trying to procreate. You know, they're not right. thinking about that all the time, but, but they're designed to like, this is your chance to find a mate, to find somebody who you can have babies with so that you can pass your genes on. And again, it's not a conscious thing for, for most of them most of the time, but if your peers are jumping off of the bridge over the river and, you know, nine out of 10 times, you'll be fine. But if you hit that rock by accident and you break your neck, like one of my patients did, who was doing this at East Coast College, then the, the risk there uh, is, is great. But when your peers are doing it, you feel left out if you don't do it. And your oxytocin says, don't be left out. You've got to engage. This is your chance to bond with these people. And your dopamine says, if you don't do this now, you're, you're never going to have this experience again, and you're never going to potentially thrive and engage. And, you know, there's all sorts of other, uh, your testosterone is saying, compete, compete. You have to be the most effective one here. So you get the mates and you get the best meeting grounds and you get the best food source and you get the most attractive mate. So all that is pushing you and you enter this hot cognitive state where you're not thinking as clearly as you could. If you take any of those people, any of those situations and you pull them out of that environment away from that bridge and you sit them at a table and say, what's the right move here? They would mm -hmm. all make the right choice, the safe choice. But in that moment, they don't make the safe choice because too much is pushing them into that moment of risk. So this is a, a this is a good tangible time. I remember in your book, you talked about your time when you were a teen. Was it in Germany when you had a risk? Yeah. Thing? And I also remember a time when I wasn't even 16 yet. I did know how to drive. We were drag racing. <laughs> I was driving a station yeah. wagon at a hundred miles per hour. So I feel like it's mm -hmm. kind of fun for us to share our own little, and then maybe even how I'm teaching my son right now because I'm in the throes of him being 14. So mm -hmm. do you want to share a little bit about your Germany time? Because I mean, you and I, in our times growing up and also with our patients and parents listening, we've had, we've all done things where it could have ended up in not such a good outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Germany was one of many times. I have a lot of stories. Uh, Germany was a dramatic one. So I just remember sort of, um, I, I recount a story in the book of of um, being angry with my father because my, my father didn't want me to go to Germany. I had an opportunity to do a summer exchange program and learn German, live with a family, which seemed like an amazing opportunity. And, and most parents would say, great. But uh, my dad knew kids and my dad had five of them. And he knew that when kids get together and they're out of their sort of watchful eye of their parent. And in Germany, I think he understood the drinking age was 18 and which means probably 16 or 15 or 12. 
uh, as opposed to the U.S., that it would be unsafe for me. And in some ways it was. And I tell some stories about some things I did there, one of which was, you know, drink a lot of beer sitting on a high tower and where I could have hurt myself. But there's many other examples of that. And, you know, we engage as teenagers in the in those behaviors for all the reasons I was just articulating that that it's we're driven to it. It's it's something we are designed for. It's just that in 2023, it doesn't make a lot of sense to engage in those behaviors. And so what we strive for as parents is, I think, to recognize that our kids like that kind of stuff uh, in many cases, or in other cases, don't even like it, but will engage in it because they're driven to it by their peers for all sorts of reasons. And if you want to talk about those reasons, it's fascinating sort of to talk about, but not necessary if you don't want to. But the take home point is we do it. And so what other risks can we give them or what other kind of engagement can we structure for them? What can you structure for your 14 year old son that will turn on that part of his brain and not deprive him of that, but not put him in a life or death situation? So can I give a specific example and then maybe hear how you integrate or have with your kids? Hey, your it's your patients? show. You do whatever you want to do. I'm just coming along for the ride. Oh my God. You're right. <laughs> making me laugh. Oh my gosh. Well, I can't, okay. Rare, funny, edgy. I love it. Okay. So my son, um, I adopted my son at birth. He is very blessed right now that he had this growth spurt from five foot three, 110 last year to five seven and a half and 148. Mm-hmm. He's got a six pack now. <laughs> and we know his genetics and my genetics. And I talk mm-hmm. in a non-shaming way. That's why I'm neurostyle. So mm-hmm. when you're talking to your kids or your patients, coming up with ways to really relate to them. And he and I, before he became so cool and has all these girls wanting him, we did a <laughs> show called My Son, My Teacher, a series last year. Mm-hmm. And we did a show called Protect Your Brain. And I have been talking with him since he was younger with these simple phrases, just like if you and I, when we were little, when Officer Friendly or the firemen told us, stop, drop, and roll. Uh So I kind of put everything in an envelope of protect your brain, embrace your neurostyle. And I catch him. He likes to have what's called family time. He calls it family time. And we sit down and he lifts weights. Or when he was last summer, he wanted to be in the pool with me. And those are the times where we do education, non-shaming, I let him know he knows um, his birth. He last met his birth mom in 2019. We're going to see them this year. He knows as much of his genetics. He knows that on the mother's side of the family, there's two generations of suicide completion. She was using heroin. She's not now. She's um, thriving as a nurse. She's sober. She has another kid. He, he knows that his uh, birth family also has attorneys, nurses, engineers, and that intelligence is protective. He knows that wildness. And then I talked to him about my father getting sober when I was 11 and that, you know, you can take everything's energy, you know, your genetics, and then there's energy in that your brain right now at 14 is not fully, he even knows we talked about on the show, it's not fully developed till age 25. So I've had to, with his neuro style of good looks, charisma, and high energy, I spend a lot of quality time with him. I do the pickups and the drop-offs. I have fostered a very kind of safe, non-judgmental, but it takes a lot of energy for me, Jess. It's one of the big reasons why I work for myself. I manage my own time because we can talk about these concepts of hot cognition, cold cognition, genetics, brain development, but actually implementing it is actually humbling to me as a mom. I know I've got all these hours of patient care, but it's really humbling. So I don't know. I just thought you'd, I'd just share a little bit of a window into my approach. It's working thus far, but it's a knock on wood for all of us when we're raising teens and we're trying to do prevention. 
Yeah, this is this is really hard stuff. And I, you know, uh, I could tell you about all the mistakes I made raising my kids who are now 22 and 25. And they, you know, they're doing well. And they've also taken risks. And they've also had some missteps because that's what happens. And it happens with everybody. And my dad knew better. And yet, even amongst the five kids in my family, there were a bunch of missteps. You know, growing up is messy. And parenting is not easy. It is a really hard job. And if we're talking about prevention and we're talking about parenting styles, then one of the things to remember is that we can teach a lot of stuff that will help parents. You're going to run into troubles. You can't predict how your kid's going to come out. You know, you choose your partner as best you can or you adopt your child as best you can and you end up with whatever you got. And, you know, that's just the way it is. And, and you know, same thing with pets. You think your pet's going to be this healthy, perfect thing, and then your pet develops a cancer or something happens. You can't know. Uh, your pet's sweet until they're 18 months, and then all of a sudden they start acting out towards other animals. And you can teach them how to, how to behave well, and you can work with your kids. And you can, I don't mean to equate kids to pets necessarily, but, but there's oh, also... They're sentient beings, and it's all yeah, about that's behavior. Right. Yeah. There, there's there is a correlation there and that is that you can't predict everything and all, all the things that are going to happen so you know it, the the best a parent can do is to stay on top of it to stay sensitive to stay empathic and to make the time for their kids and then all this prevention stuff you can do the best you can do and you can keep doubling down your efforts but you can't you know your, your kids are going to drink or they're going to smoke weed or they're going to drive too fast or they're going to have unprotected sex. I, I'm not saying it's going to all happen. I'm not saying it all has to happen, but these things do happen in life. We went through it. We know a lot of people who go through these things. And so, you know, we can keep using the tools we have to do the best we can and to support them and structure time for them. But, you know, you mentioned this program in Iceland. Uh, yeah, I'm so glad, by the way, I was just going to talk to you about Iceland. That's great. Thank you. Well, it's just a good example of what can happen when you provide structure and supervision. So the, the Youth in Iceland program is a well-recognized program uh, initially for some of its outcomes, which had to do with things like cigarette smoking. Iceland, which for funny reasons is considered Europe, but, you know, it had the highest cigarette smoking rate in Europe amongst teenagers, which was something over 25%, really high rates of cigarette smoking. And what they did was very simple. They gave families that were impoverished, lower middle income and low income, what they called leisure passes. And they gave these families $2,500 a year from the government to take their kids out to dinner. They couldn't use the money for any purpose. It was like on a card that you could use at certain places, but you could take your kids bowling, you take them out to dinner, you know, a year. They also mandated after school programming for kids in high school so that you had to be in school until 530 in the afternoon. That meant that kids who needed tutoring got tutoring. Kids who didn't need tutoring and homework help uh, ended up getting more sports programming or more music or more arts. And within six months, and they, they did add a curfew. And now Iceland's a really small country. There's like 300,000 people in Iceland. And, and it's it's not a lot of people to manage. But you know, unlike the US, which is 300 million people. But at the end of the day, when they put in some nighttime curfews during the week and, and weekend for younger people, made sure that they were home, they didn't arrest them, but they tried to keep people at home. And when they built in after school programming and more supervision and gave parents who didn't have an opportunity to spend time out with their kids time out, they had amazing gains. And one of those gains was their, their rate of cigarette smoking dropped to the lowest in Europe, under 5%. Cigarette smoking is the number one preventable cause of death. We lose a half a million people in the United States every year to cigarette smoking. 
And it's pretty much true with every country that has cigarettes, that it's the leading or one of the leading causes of death, developing or developed countries. So this is a major improvement. And and those who die of cigarette smoking related causes typically die 20 years early. So they have a lot of illness, a lot of discomfort, and a lot of difficulty for the last years of their lives. And so here's a great opportunity to do something very powerful that took a little bit of money and effort, but really it's about time and focus and giving kids something meaningful to do. When I was growing up in high school, I got out of school at 2.20 in the afternoon. My parents did it, didn't get home till 7 or 7.30. And that gave me five hours to, I don't know, get behind the wheel of some vehicle, go cardboard sliding, go to the mall and hang out, find out who, was, who had weed, you know, the kind of things that, that are not the most productive for kids. And so when we build in productive structure, our kids do well because they're engaged. They, they want to be engaged in cool stuff. They just want to be doing stuff. And in the absence of us providing it, they'll find it. You know what? You're exactly right. So that's why, you know, I feel very fortunate. I think one of the big issues, whether it's in the United States or around the world is how do parents, when they're juggling different work life balance themselves, provide that infrastructure. So that's what I really love about the way Iceland set that up. And, you know, it just dawned on me as you were speaking, I'd love to hear if you're going to do a part two of this book, but I was thinking about what you set up at NYU and the undergraduate program, the CAMS program, to me, all the different wellness courses that you've set up. And I know years ago, you were telling me that other universities were going to model after that. To me, that CAMS program serves as a, would be neat if the curriculum was taking the parenting class, whether you're going to be a parent or not. It's a way to get these transmissions and these ideas, because I think authoritative versus authoritarian, that style of communicating really transmits beyond just parenting our children. It's how great leaders can come and evolve. It's how the world can do better. So do you find that a lot of people, is there a course in your undergrad that's teaching this so people can go out into the world if they decide to have children? Yeah. So um, I'll tell you two things. One is that CAMS, our our undergraduate department, uh, has been started at University of Vermont at Georgetown University, at Indiana University, and at UCLA. All of them have full programs in child and adolescent mental health studies that are academic college minors. Yeah, they're great. There are many other- By the way, everyone, I just have to tell you, I love Jess, so I'm a little bit excited about all this. So he's worked really hard, so keep going. (laughs) (laughs) You worked hard, and it's so neat to see these wellness and prevention, I call them karmic burners grow. So tell me more. Uh, and then uh, other, I've been in touch with other universities. I, I won't say their names because they're still working on stuff, but a number of others are working on this. And so I'm, I remain enthusiastic about that as well. Uh, but as far as courses go, when I came to NYU, it was in um, 2006. I started uh, in December 2005. So let's say 2006, I started at NYU and I was recruited for two jobs. One was to... Uh, revamp and and take over the child and adolescent fellowship, which is where you and I met at UCLA, which is the the training program specifically in child and adolescent psychiatry. And the other piece was to do something at the college because NYU had seven deaths by suicide in 2003 and four, which is far more than they'd ever had in an academic year and more than you would expect given their size of campus. They're a big campus. And statistically, you, you might expect that one or two suicides would happen, but not to see seven. 
So the university wanted to do something. There was a lot of engagement and the university did a lot of great things to try and address the concerns around mental health on campus. They actually became kind of a model campus in, in many ways by starting a 24-7 uh, wellness number that students could call for support. They, they uh, developed satellite locations and evening and weekend hours for counseling. They also did some safety things like training the resident advisors in the dormitories and, and uh, locking you know, doors that would lead up to tall buildings where students could jump, all sorts of things of this nature. But another thing they did was to invite us at the college level to get involved from the medical school and to do some teaching. And the initial thing that I started was a resilience course. And in fact, uh, that course has then gone on and that, that became the core of what became this college minor. But we've got a whole bunch of other courses now that we teach as well. We've got 54 courses that are unique to the college. So one is on resilience. We call it the road to resilience. And I could articulate that curriculum if it interests you, but it's a great curriculum I'm excited about. We have a yeah, course. No, I think let's articulate it because to me, that was the when we look at universal truths, like when I joked about you and I flying up in a spaceship, your mind is the ship and you've done this. So let's talk about it. I mean, this is where this is what birthed all these exceptional integrative wellness and prevention strategies. So let's let's go there. Okay. But I'll but before I do, I'll just say that we do have a parenting class. We've had it for about 15 years. We teach it every semester. We also have a course on sleep, which we've taught for about a dozen years every semester. We have a course on positive psychology. So many of our courses, we also have courses on divorce and trauma and love and psychopathology and eating disorders and, and anxiety disorders and you know, emerging adult development and preschool development, all sorts of things. So if anyone's interested, you can just Google NYU uh, College of Arts and Science CAMS or NYU CAMS uh, space between the two. We'll, we'll get you to our program and you can learn more about our courses. But the, the road to resilience is the current iteration of a resilience curriculum that I've been teaching at NYU for 16 years. And in this curriculum, what I've tried to do is to build in a slow and steady burn so that the students are engaged every week throughout the week in activities that are promoting their learning and their own personal development in terms of uh, in terms of mental health and wellness and resilience enhancement. And so there are a number of tools that we know work. I've uh, I articulated as with an acronym I call CHARM, C-H-A-R-M. And in this sort of uh, rubric falls out all the things that we do. I can tell you more specifically about how we teach the curriculum if you want, because there's some cool things we do there. Yeah, let's do it. This is all also how when we're thinking about wellness and prevention, you teaching this is teaching people a neurostyle or perception of the way to, to, to make things stick, make habits stick and be resilient. Yeah. So the, the way we start the course, it's a 14-week course. And one of the things I've learned is that if you want students to really absorb this material, there has to be some sort of uh, secondary gain that they're getting out of it. Like if you just say like, we're going to teach you this course and you can come if you want to or not come if you don't want to, or it's one credit pass fail. And you don't, you know, if you, as long as you do a little bit of work, you'll pass the class. Like that doesn't work. I've tried that. What and students will like it if they like it. And those who won't like it, won't like it, but they won't, even those who like it won't necessarily put in the work. If you make it an academic course and they're getting a grade and they have actual work expectations and they're actually supposed to read the material and you hold them accountable for it, then they learn. 
and then they do much better and then they're more likely to hold on to it. And that's what we've learned. So it's a four credit course. The NYU typically, uh, in order for a class to get full credit is four credits. So it's a four credit course and it's filled with assignments. In the first week, we prime them by teaching about the course, by showing them the curriculum, by telling them this is going to be a lot of work. We don't shy away from that. We say you're actually going to work hard in this course. This is going to, you're going to be surprised at how much work you put in and you're going to be surprised at how much you get out. So unlike a lot of other courses, which will sort of give you perspective and a few thoughts, you're going to get that in this course and you're going to get a bunch of skills that, that are transferable that you can take with you. And we have some research to show that. So these are things that will be hopefully things that you'll take with you for your future. And in order to get there, you're going to have to do some work. So this is why it matters. And the first week we lay out, so the rules of the game, and then also neuroscience, we teach about the growth mindset. We teach, we don't specify what it is. We just say that you can actually change your brain by doing certain things. And, and the growth mindset is, is an idea that's been around for a few decades, basically demonstrating that, you know, your brain is what we call plastic. It's, it's flexible and it's more flexible when you're younger. So if you want to learn to throw a baseball or ride a bicycle or swim, you really do better when you learn those things when you're young, because as you get older, those things get harder and harder because your brain gets more rigid or less plastic, less moldable. So we teach those things when kids are young and we teach them in the first week, you know, these, these are the kind of risks that are out there and, and you can, which they know about, and you can change your brain by doing certain things. And we actually give them assignments every single week. They have to do a small paper or assignment every week or a small video in which they demonstrate what they're learning. So that accountability, and they get two points out of a hundred for that every week. So, so 15 weeks, 15 of those assignments, you know, 30 of their points are for these weekly assignments, which means I have to do, or my TA and I have to do a lot of grading, but they also are constantly keeping this stuff in mind. And then starting the second class, we begin and end every class with mindfulness. So we spend five minutes at the beginning of every single class, just sitting still and breathing. And a few of them are into it. Oh, I'm a yoga instructor. I love this stuff. I always do this. This is great. And then most of them are like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing so we teach them to breathe, we teach them about diaphragmatic breathing, we teach them about relaxation, and sure enough, almost to a student, by mid-semester, students are coming up to me saying, you know, I'm doing this now more because I found this really helpful. And we teach them about the science of this as the course goes on too. And they learn about the science of it around week 12. They don't learn about the science early on. They just learn the practice early on. So five minutes before every class, at, at the beginning of every class, they breathe. And then... At minute six, they get a quiz. And that quiz is worth 1% of their grade every week. Uh, I'm sorry, twice a week we meet. So another 14 weeks, 28 uh, points or 28% of their grade is based on these weekly quizzes, the twice weekly quizzes they take. And these quizzes are based on the reading. So they have to read before they come to class. And that's how I hold them accountable for doing the reading. So they get a 10-point quiz. And most of them fail the first one because they're like, oh, it's, you know, it's going to be easy. I just look at the abstracts. No big deal. I read part of the book. They actually read four books in this class and they read about another 35 articles, which for a class in college is actually a fair amount of work. And yeah. so they end up doing, a, 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 and most of them will tell me at the end of the semester, this course is really hard, but you know, I learned a lot and, and I do a lot. And so they breathe at the beginning of class, they take their quiz and the breathing is then, it's all practical. Everything we're doing is about, this is how you can do your life. So think about when you go into a test or when you go into a presentation breathe for a minute before you do that. Cool your neural system a little bit before you do that. And at the end of class, 
We do a mindful exercise and there are a million of these things, breathing colors, you know, building boxes in your head, counting your breaths, uh, progressive muscle relaxation, imagery. We teach them a different one every class. So they learn uh, 28 mindfulness exercises throughout the semester as well. And they do these at the end, the last five minutes of every class. And then every class in between is filled with a curriculum that is uh, going over the quiz. They take their quiz, then we grade their quiz right away. So they get to see how they did, we answer any confusions, and then we move on. And about half of the class is focused on exercises and practice. And about half of the class is new learning, preparing them for the next reading they'll be doing. And so the course focuses on, the, the first unit of the course is on healthy habits. That's the H in the CHARM acronym. And what's the, habit, the C for, what's the it's C? Communication. Communication. But the first part of the curriculum we start, it, it doesn't, it doesn't follow the acronym in order. I couldn't be that, uh, that, that uh, creative about it, but we start with the H and the H is healthy habits. And we, we try to get them, they, they read a book called the power of habit and they learn about habits and how habits are formed and what the neural system uh, in habit formation is about. And we encourage them to choose a keystone habit because I, I love this, this, this little pithy phrase that's been around for years. And that is, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. You know, once you start doing something that leads to more stuff you start doing. Right. And so if people start exercising, they continue often exercising if they can build a way in and then they sometimes start eating a little bit better and then they start going to bed a little earlier, you know, things build on themselves. And so we try to get them to choose a keystone habit and we encourage them to choose yoga, meditation, or exercise because all of those are actually known to change the brain. You can look at functional magnetic resonance imaging, MRI, and you can see that when people engage in these activities daily or most days for about two months, their brain starts to change. They start to rewire their plastic brain. So that's very exciting. And, and we teach them about that and we try to get them to choose a habit and then we check in on that habit. And we focus as well on a little bit of goal setting and organizational skills, as well as nutrition and uh, sleep. And so they get a week on sleep, they get a few sessions on nutrition, they get a few sessions on uh, goal setting and organizational skills, and then we just encourage them to think about exercise and keep track of that. And then the next part of the curriculum focuses on communication. And we read a book called Difficult Conversations, which is one of the best books ever written. It's like a 200 page, it's like the best self-help book I've ever written. I've uh, written, I wish I wrote it, uh, read. What was uh, the author? Uh, the authors are, uh, oh gosh, I'm going to tell you. This. You can get it later if you don't have it now. Yeah. <laughs> Difficult Conversations. It's by the Harvard Negotiation Project. Uh, and uh, let's see, Dewey wrote The Power of Habit at Difficult Conversations. Who wrote so, The Power of Habit? Pat, Patton and Stone wrote Difficult Conversations. Patton, P-A-T-T-O-N and Stone. And The Power of Habit is guy, uh, I think it's William Dewey, D-U-H-I-G-G. And so they, they read difficult conversations and one of their, and again, they're doing assignments every week. They're taking quizzes every week on parts of the book. So they're reading the book, they're reading the articles, they're playing with this material. And then they, uh, their midterm paper is where they, and basically they learn in the class during the communication unit, how to have effective arguments and conversations, why people get agitated, what happens when people yell. And we teach them a lot of habits and things that people do in effective conversation. I'll give you a very simple one. Match and lower. When someone is very agitated, this doesn't come out of the book, this is other clinical practice, but we, we incorporate a lot of things. So when somebody is, uh, is agitated, a child or a 
colleague or a lover, they will sometimes raise their voice. And when people raise their voice, they don't hear exactly what's going on. They get the emotional input, but they don't necessarily get the, the content. And so we teach them that sometimes you have to raise your voice up to their volume level, not emotional intensity, and then bring it back down. I know you're upset, Denise, but here's the thing. We should talk. I have to no. do this with my son now. I call it my lioness moments. Yeah. And and we do that all the mindfully, time. Mindfully. Mindfully I do. Yeah, mindfully. Instead of staying high and 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 you know pushing back and yelling, we are mindful of modulating that. And the other thing this book does that I think is really great is it breaks down every argument or difficult conversation into three conversations, what they call the what happened conversations, what we're talking about, which is where people mostly get stuck. And they move on to the feelings conversation, why it is that people get stuck on those things because their feelings are so deeply ingrained and associated with whatever is going on, even though it may only be about who left their dishes in the sink, still their feelings of, uh, of, of not being valuable enough that someone would love them enough to actually do the dishes like they said they would do or, you know, or whatever else. And that is all their feelings are so uh, raw because at base they have this identity that they're struggling with. Am I a good enough person? Am I worthy of love? Am I valuable? I did a year long course when we were in training in my third year of adult residency, uh, focused on couples therapy. It was two hours, twice a week. It was an elective. I loved it. I did it for about, I think it was a year program. And I learned a lot about couples therapy. And then I read this book and I was like, oh, same thing. This is really about why people argue and how they communicate well and not so well and what you can do about it. So we, they read that and they their midterm paper is to take a difficult conversation, usually it's with a parent or a boyfriend or girlfriend, and to write about uh, how it went. I love it. And then rewrite it as using these tools and how and why they would change it the way they change it. And this becomes, you know, a 10-page paper and, and they learn a ton from and that's the C communication piece. Then we go into an anxiety and mood piece. That's the A from uh, charm and the M from charm. Mm-hmm. They learn about not so much depression and anxiety, but they learn tools to manage depression and anxiety or sadness and a lot of worry. And so they learn about cognitive behavioral therapy. They learn about cognitive distortions, behavioral activation. They learn about the triple column technique. And for that, they read uh, feeling good, the, the, um, book by Burns, Feeling Good, which is a book on CBT, and it's mm-hmm. really helpful, and uh, they really enjoy that, and they learn a lot about those tools, and they also learn about how that applies to mood, and they learn about mood enhancement techniques. Again, every class they're meditating, every class they're doing mindfulness, every every week they're hopefully on their exercise schedule, they've improved their sleep, you know, they're writing papers about these things. And then finally, at the end of this, at the end, we do the R, which is risk management. And they read my Born to be Wild book. And we talk about how to manage risk. And the reason I put risk at the end is that I think when you talk to young adults or teenagers about like smoking weed and drinking and this and that, you kind of come off like an old fuddy-duddy if you just say like, don't do these things, you know? Right. These are not good things to do. But if you come at it now from this wellness, resilience, strength enhancement perspective, if you've learned about why it is that people, uh, you know, suffer with bad moods and and anxiety and get these communication problems and, and therefore why they turn to drugs in the first place or alcohol to numb themselves, then I think it makes much more sense to say, so these actually a lot of scientific reasons as well as behavioral reasons as to why people do these things. And so we actually have a bunch of tools now that you've learned throughout the semester and you can address these towards these risk behaviors or not. And they write a final paper where they sort of assess the semester and, and their experience. And and again, every week there's papers and 
Yeah, there's a lot of conversation. And I would say that, you know, 80% of the students really love the course. I think that the others are sort of like, it's okay, you know, it's fine. It's a lot of work, more work than I thought. Not everybody's always ready for this kind of thing, even if they think they are at the beginning of the semester. But the reviews are always very good. And I think that many of the students stay very, very bonded to me and the other instructors who teach it. And they feel very committed and uh, really feel like they get a lot out of it. So I think some version of that in high schools and things would be great. Is the M the management part of risk management? The uh, charm? Uh, the got charm communication, risk, healthy yeah, habits. Risk is the M, the mood? What's... Yeah, A is anxiety, R is risk management, and M is mood. Okay, perfect. So yeah. first of all, it's so interesting because I feel like the, I was like, oh my gosh, Jess has so much knowledge. Let's travel and like look above this. I feel like your road to resilience course is like landmark of health, wellness, integrative. And I also wrote down the word scaffolding. I like the way the course is set up with five minutes of mindfulness, then a test because much of life is a series of peaceful moments. Then we have an adrenaline burst. So mm-hmm. even the way the thoughtfulness and how you've structured the course to me parallels life on earth. And so I feel like I'm glad that we ended up here right here at the end of this show talking about this incredible course. In fact, I would love to see this type of course and what you're doing be something that's almost like part of a high school graduate graduation in all the schools, because to me, that would be a huge, like a requirement, you know, there's like the history tests because there's so much wellness and so much prevention and it's done in such a lovely way. So I just want to pause and thank you all your gifts that you were given and how you're integrating them and everything you're doing, Dr. Shatkin. Thank you, Dr. McDermott. I appreciate that. And yeah, I'm actually working with a school, uh, a couple of um, communities in Ohio, actually. They, they, you know, it's funny how you end up consulting with different groups, but I'm working with them and we're, we're talking about this kind of curriculum for them. And uh, I've done some studies of it in New York City already as well, but it's, I, I've had a very hard time recasting New York City's curriculum. It's just a big place. So I think I'll start in a smaller venue uh, where I can do a, a more thorough study of this at the, at the high school level. But at the college level, we're quite impressed with how well it works and students are doing well and we've written about it and we've been very pleased so yeah the the take-home point i think from all of this is if you have expectations of people and you're clear about it and you're giving them something that is useful for them uh, most people will be excited about that and engage in that and those who aren't you know they, they may not be at the right time in their life to engage in that or to appreciate that or to benefit from it or whatever or it just may not be their thing but we can help a lot of people on the front end. And it also increases a lot of empathy. And I think that one of the things that parents struggle with, you know, my idea is that we ought to call these courses neuroscience or something like it in high school and just teach. It's like behavioral neuroscience. You know, you're basically teaching the brain and how the brain works and then how you can work with the brain to enhance your great possibilities and come out your best, you know, best, safest, happiest, you know, most engaged, most rewarded person and uh, be good to other people. So that's what a lot of this stuff does. Well, I love it. And it's actually completely in alignment with embracing your nerve style and beyond because all the different things that you're doing about wellness, not illness, giving healthy habits, having people be in the moment of now, but have a mindful of awareness of how are they doing yoga, meditating, playing music? How am I in this moment? Am I happy? Am I joyful? What do I need to do? 
and it's all backed by science and neuroscience. So I think it's fantastic. So I would love to have you tell everyone where they can find you. And I'd love to invite you next month or July, actually next month, if we can swing it, uh, because you have some other fun parts of who you are, like we all do, and lots of creativity in your genetics and play. <laughs> so number one, can everyone uh, hear where they can find you? And number two, maybe you can let them know a little bit about a little teaser as to what you're doing in the world of creativity. Sure. So uh, if you want to learn about the work I do, um, I got to update my website again, but I do have a website, Dr. Jess P. Shatkin. Uh, but uh, I also have a, a radio program every Thursday, 3 to 4 p.m. on Sirius XM. If you're a Sirius subscriber, uh, 110, uh, it's called Dr. Radio Channel 110, and it's a call-in show. So feel free to call in and ask questions. We talk mostly about a mental illness and, and psychiatric disturbance, but we talk a lot about parenting and sleep and some of these resilience factors as well. And that's a call-in, and um, I think there's about 25 million serious subscribers, and it's a really fun show. I love doing it. So that's Thursdays, 3 to 4, East Coast time. So that would be noon for you out in California and anywhere in between. And then if you're if you're into music, you know, and you want to sort of, uh, you know, I, I'm been into music my whole life. And when I was a kid, I, I wanted to be a doctor or a musician. And I think that uh, it, it was as hard as it is to become a doctor. I think it was a whole lot easier for me to become a doctor than a musician, probably. And it may be because I have more talents in that area than I do in music, but I love playing music and I, I learn a lot from it. And it's a constant uh, sort of challenge, mystery and uh, creative endeavor and passion for me. And so I've been playing guitar since I was a kid, but I have learn to produce music. And so I've been writing songs forever. And I've, uh, although it takes time and I don't get paid for it, I do put those songs out on Spotify and iTunes and all the, wherever you get digital music. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm looking for a new band name so you can help me. But, uh, but I, I got under my full name, Jess Parker Shatkin, but I'll be um, taking down some of those songs and putting up my first album. I finished a bunch more songs and I got to put them up and I'm working on my second album right now. So wherever you get music right now, it's Jess Parker Shatkin, but I'll be putting it out under a band name because I started to incorporate some friends now and again into the music as well. I've been playing all the instruments uh, and singing everything and I'm, and I'm starting to get a little bit more expansive by bringing more people in sometimes. So that's it. Yay. Okay. Well, I think everyone knows that I talk about play and how important it is to have fun. And I thank you for our time today and all that you're doing in honor of wellness and just I'm smiling. So thank you so much for today, Jess. And thanks for having me, Denise. Great pleasure to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Check out Dr. Jess Shatkin. <laughs>